0: Well, I'd like to welcome everyone to our 182nd monthly webinar. I can't believe it. It makes me feel old to think about it. But uh, the title is Finding the Vulnerable in Modern Healthcare Delivery, whose suffering can we mitigate? And we're just delighted to have a fantastic group with you. I'm Charles Denham. I'm going to just be your uh, your uh, host today, and maybe provocateur on some of the questions that we'll have from our uh, reactors. Uh, and we uh, are really delighted to have you join us. Um, we have uh, Dr. Jean Huddleston, who I will introduce here shortly, uh, as our main speaker, and we have a wonderful set of uh, reactors who will join, uh, join us uh, uh, as well. Um, for those of you that are attending, and we have more and more people wanting to attend uh, uh, remotely and asynchronously, you can always go back to www.safetyleaders.org uh, and download the slides. We'll be adding and posting uh, articles and slides and updates to the webinars. However, for those of you that uh, have logged on uh, over uh, Facebook, uh, you can download the slides from that the website as well. So go to www.safetyleaders.org, and then you can click on uh, register or more information in the upper right-hand quadrant, and then you'll be able to uh, see the wonderful group that we have uh, today. Jennifer Dingman is our voice of the patient. Dr. Jean Huddleston will be our main speaker. Camille... Uh, Chiara I hope I pronounce it properly, Camille, and you can correct me. The, Dr. Gregory Boats, uh, for those of you that are watching asynchronously, will be able to comment. He's in the ICU today and wasn't able to join us uh, live. Uh, many of you know the best-selling author and uh, patient safety leader, John Nance. And we have Dr. Tim Jessick also reacting, who's, who's spoken on end-of-life issues in a wonderful way in, the, in pr- previously. And both Camille and uh, Jean uh, and Tim know each other and they've worked together and we want to thank Eugene for bringing them together with us. So it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Jennifer Dingman, who has uh, been a longstanding leader in patient safety, served on national committees, national boards, is a published author. Uh, Most importantly, she's been our voice of the patient throughout this coronavirus crisis. Uh, She is the 2018 winner of the Pete Conrad Global Patient Safety Award for great work in uh, national programs that have saved uh, many, many lives and many, many, Uh, millions of dollars. Uh, Jennifer, would you please set our course heading for today?
1: Thank, Thank you, Dr. Denham. It's great to be here. I'm really looking forward to today's program about how stressed out our emergency safety net is. This is really, really important for all of our participants. I urge you to please share the future video with your colleagues, friends, and families. And Again, thank you all for being here. And I'll hand it back over to you, Dr. Denham.
0: Thank you, Jenny. And thank you for all you do. Um, uh we're going to work hard in 20, uh, the, the remainder of uh, 2022 to be more active on our social media accounts, which you'll see uh, on the uh, slide uh, before you now, and I won't go into the detail. However, I will go into the detail on our purpose, mission, and values. So for those of you that are joining us for the first time, we measure our success by how we enrich and protect the lives of families, patients, and caregivers our mission is to accelerate performance solutions that save lives, save money, and create value in the communities we serve. We really, we really know that there are a terrific number of um, uh, opportunities for improvement, a term I got from Dr. Huddleston, uh, that can actually do all three. And uh, we live our core values. We've learned a lot about implementing values through Ann Rhodes, and, uh, uh, who is the co-founder of JetBlue, who taught us, that leaders drive the values, values drive performance uh, through behaviors, uh, and that we can live our values. And we try to live our values of integrity, compassion, accountability, reliability, and entrepreneurship uh, every day. Do we get there? No, but we're, we're always aspiring to do so. None of our speakers have anything to disclose. Uh, uh, with no no pharmaceutical money direct or indirect or device uh, funding has come uh, to uh, fund the program. Uh, Our program is entirely funded by uh, family philanthropy. Uh, And just for those that haven't been with us uh, uh, over the last 39 years, uh, we developed a network of 3,100 hospitals and 3,000 communities Uh, And we are just so grateful to have more than 500 subject matter experts that have joined us that are contributors like our wonderful speakers today, uh, and uh, uh, we call on them to help us. So about three and a half years ago, we started a program called the Emerging Threats Community of Practice. Uh, You can go to globalpatientsafetyforum.org to see more, and you see the former health minister of Switzerland's face uh, on the left side of the screen. We identified approximately 30 areas that are keeping leaders up at night, and as they start to discuss these challenges that you see before you on the right side of the the screen, uh, many of them realize many of the threats, the emerging threats, are both visible and invisible uh, and are keeping them up at night. Unintentional harm of patients by or through errors of omission from systems failures identified by mortality reviews was one of the areas we identified and that that Credit goes to Dr. Jean Huddleston, who um, I had the honor of uh, helping get uh, this article published when I was uh, the uh, editor-in-chief of the Journal of Patient Safety. Dr. Steve Swenson, one of my dearest friends, said, you've really got to talk to Dr. Huddleston. She's doing terrific work at Mayo Clinic. And thank you, Jean, for your pioneering work at the Mayo Clinic on mortality reviews. And that led us to identify one of these 30 subject matter areas that we're now focused on. We also, uh, and oddly enough, prior to the uh, COVID crisis, identified readiness for epidemics, uh, including preparedness for testing and volume surges, Uh, which led us to uh, make a commitment. uh, Now it's two years ago this month when, um, on the 11th of March, it was announced that we did have a pandemic. We declared that we would start a second community of practice, or a third community of practice, but a second series of webinars. And we've now produced uh, 24 webinars focused on the families of essential critical workers. And you can uh, see that uh, uh, by going to safetyleaders.org or or, uh, www.medtechglobal.org. We started with about 40 subject matter experts. It's grown to about 130 subject matter experts and there are contributions from many that have been in our prior Discovery films. Uh, John Nance is actually in one of our films, but Sully Sullenberger, uh, Dr. Berwick, uh, Dr. Uh, Koh, who was the former uh, Assistant Secretary of Public Health, Jim Bayesian, an astronaut engineer, and the head of patient safety for the VA, and Dr. Harvey Feinberg, who was the former provost at Harvard. That's where I met him. He actually became one of the presidents of the National Academies of Sciences uh, and has done terrific work. Uh, uh, globally. Uh, so we started a one, we started a study and we set our goal to, to study 1,000 families of critical essential workers. and these are the organizations that participated with us. Um, as you many of you or some of you have uh, heard in our prior films, we always uh, put our messages together based on head, heart, hands, and voice. and you'll see Dr. Huddleston does something very similar. We focus on. Uh, we uh, actually now have more than one 1,000 families that we studied response, or I'm sorry, rescue response, rescue uh, readiness, response, rescue, recovery, and resilience, uh, which led us to produce these uh, 24 programs. And you can go and watch these 90-minute programs that now we're breaking up into smaller courses covering everything uh, across the board as they were popping up with uh, this issue of COVID. Um, And this is an animation I had the honor of working with and and collaborating with Dr. Jim Reason, uh, who helped us understand the Swiss cheese model of of, uh, medical error, of harm, of systems harm, and we've applied it to the whole COVID uh, crisis. And we've been helping people kind of understand that uh, not one of the mitigation activities uh, uh, is enough and that we really need to be working with all of them. So finally, uh, and we're right on time. We're at 10.09, uh, my time here on the, East Co- on the West Coast. Uh, our next uh, program is the Next Normal Survive and Thrive Guide. It's on April 7th. Please join us, another free program. Um, and we're going to address the, B- the, the uh, Omicron BA2 virus and what may be potentially happening. This morning I listened to it, just as released every Thursday, uh, Dr. Uh, Michael Osterholm, uh, I highly recommend these free podcasts, they're an hour long. And uh, he has not been wrong in 24 months. And uh, just a terrific epidemiologist, 45 years of medical detective. He's worked with five of the administrations Um, Also, I highly recommend the article, which is actually posted on our website by Sanjay Gupta. I've had the honor of uh, kind of having dinner with him and getting to know him, Uh, and these are some of the quotes. Again, I'm not going to take away from Dr. Huddleston's presentation, but I highly recommend that you read um, uh, Sanjay Gupta's article. And he basically takes America and says, look, if America was my patient, what would I be doing? and he basically is helping us understand that we're not out of the woods. This is like having an infected patient that still needs care. Um, also, uh, an, a really excellent article by Eric Topol. Dr. Topol addresses uh, uh, the fact that we may be in denial and we've really got a problem uh, with greater than uh, 30% of the new cases, the BA2 variant, uh, Omicron variant, and uh, highly recommend this article as well. It'll also It's also posted. And then finally, there's a terrific hundred and it's over 130 total pages. And you can see the the, uh, the uh, outline uh, and the um, content, table, uh, the table of contents on the right of getting to and sustaining the next normal. Uh, it's a terrific, just very comprehensive program that was submitted to the Biden administration. It's uh, free. You can download it. And uh, it is, uh, you know, absolutely terrific. So, Dr. Jean Huddleston is a fabulous contributor to patient safety. I always say that she's the next Don Berwick in terms of her potential contribution. A hospitalist, she was a former mortality, uh, a chair of mortality review committee at the Mayo Clinic. I'll never forget when Jean told me that she presented her mortality review information to the board of uh, the Mayo Clinic, and they said, "Great stories, uh, Dr. Huddleston." However, we need data. We need measurement. She went back to get a master's in specifically being able to do that. She's done some of the most comprehensive and great, greatest work that we've seen in patient safety. And Jean, we're just delighted to have you uh, um, uh, with us today. Uh, and uh, we want you to tell us about your collaborative and uh, share with us uh, uh, your story. So I'm going to start. Would you like to share your slides from your computer? Jean, are you on uh, mute?
1: I was, yes, on mute. And yes, I would love to share. Thank you.
0: There you go. You can now share.
1: Well, thank you very much for that kind introduction. As usual, it's been two years since I had the opportunity to interact with your teams, and it's awesome to be back. Um, That industrial engineering degree that I went back to get has sincerely, even though I'm visiting with my father right now in Florida, he still thinks I'm crazy, but it has made a huge difference in the way that our team of collaborators, which I'll talk about in more detail in a moment, has had an opportunity to look through experiences. So I'm gonna begin with a story. This is uh, an experience from one of our collaborators' hospitals. So Veda's 93 years old and she has lots of comorbidities. She was found down, she lived at home alone, and when she got to the emergency room, detected that she had a femoral neck fracture. She would held NPO on admission and experienced respiratory distress postoperatively. Significant anemia needed a transfusion. Actually, was so delirious in an uncontrolled way that they put her on a Presidex drip. Yes, a 93-year-old on a Presidex drip, and then she developed aspiration pneumonitis. Before the delirium, she had been okayed to eat a regular diet post-operatively. There was no repeat evaluation that was completed following the, in, the ICU stay or the development of the delirium. She had multiple witnessed episodes of aspiration and after one evening had a significant episode and then was put on BiPAP. If we look at this through our traditional lens, so the lens that I was trained with 20 some odd years ago go with patient safety. We look for a whole bunch of adverse events in here and we can see them. But the lens that we try to use is the one of the patient's experience or maybe the family member's experience watching this unfold or the people that were taking care of her. So if we look through the sort of systems and processes in green that one would expect to happen in a rather cyclical way while someone's taking care of a patient, we identify these opportunities or these omissions or these absences of that type of care being delivered. So daily bedside evaluation in terms of her deterioration around her respiratory status treatment refined and reordered as things went along as her condition changed in regards to what she was eating and aspiration precautions, et cetera, and the treatment that was being delivered. She was discovered in one of the collaborators processes of looking at mortality reviews through the opportunity of aspiration. And this is significant because this particular health system had just completed a couple year project multi discipline multi multi-specialty, state-of-the-art, the way it's all supposed to be done on improving or decreasing their aspiration rates and had huge success. They started their journey with us doing reviews in February of 2020. We all know what happened in March. The, the wheels came off, things came to a screeching halt, but this particular hospital kept doing reviews and kept meeting together to come to consensus about what they were identifying. After their first 30 case reviews, we paused and we looked through them to see if there was anything what we call a cluster. Were there a group of patients that had similar experiences? There were three patients out of 30 that had a shared aspiration experience that shocked them because they thought they had fixed aspirations. So how do 30 out of 30 consecutive deaths, how do three out of 30, 10% still have aspiration that ultimately leads to uh, a significant decline of death. So it's through that we identified their first cluster, aspiration and dug into it to identify who is it that's vulnerable in this system that we thought we fixed, in the processes that we think are reliably being delivered, how did these three people slip through? What are we missing? And that was the road that we went on. And I'm going to take you through each of the steps because that road that we went on and what VEDA taught us was about the stuff that goes on under the surface of the water. For those of you who've heard me speak before, you know that I'm obsessed with the concept of the iceberg, that I believe completely in what's at the tip of the iceberg because it's such important work and it has to happen, but as a practicing provider in the trenches and over the last, since I uh, spoke to you all last, I moved away from the mothership or the big Mayo Clinic. And I'm now working in a critical access facility that also serves as a transitional care unit and a small community hospital with roughly 40 beds. So in those other two environments, as well as the experience of over 20 years in Rochester, I have a really good feeling about what goes on under the surface of the water as I interact with my colleagues in the middle of the night or on weekends. And I can tell you, leadership doesn't know everything that happens. Don't tell them. They wouldn't agree, but there's certainly things that they have blind spots for. And so this iceberg to me symbolizes everything that we're trying to learn. And so our methodology seeks to identify, define, and quantify the things that go on under the surface of the water that we can actually then communicate more effectively. And that's a big piece of our work, communicate effectively to our leadership to inspire them to fix the things that need fixing to improve the care for our patients and to help us as providers come to work and do our best job every day because we don't come to work for this to happen. Over the course of the last six years that the collaborative has been up and running We started with the safety learning system, which basically includes the learning components and the innovate, improve on the bottom part of this. But what we've discovered as we've rolled this out now to more than 150 hospitals is that we need to do more than just learn. We actually need to do something with it, and we're all not, we don't all have the background to actually know what to do with it. And so how do we build a curriculum that no matter what someone's educational background or how many years of experience they have, if they have the heart for quality and patient safety, how do we build a program and a curriculum that can take people all the way through the flywheel? And I borrow the term flywheel from Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, because it makes so much sense to me. The first time around is hard work. There is so much resistance and uh tension and things that we have to work through the inertia to just get up and going and get moving more freely. And so we've developed this flywheel concept to actually take the information that we gathered that is in alignment with an organizational structure and mission and vision, and then take that through to actually disseminating meaningful knowledge to everyone across the board. We have a heart, head and hands approach as Dr. Denham mentioned, and I'm going to begin with a heart because this is one of the pieces that keeps me doing this work. Now I started in 2003. So now for 19, almost 20 years, those who of you who know me know I have a little bit of an attention deficit disorder. So almost 20 years of doing something other than raising my children and being married is a really, really hard thing. And those are hard too. But it's this piece that no one should ever suffer or die as a result of process or system failures that ultimately led me to go back to school and get my engineering degree. Every time someone suffers in our hospitals, in our clinics, in our mental health facilities, in our, on our streets, wherever they happen to be getting their care, there is a care provider on the other end of that interaction that is carrying that burden with them. And many of us recall the events that we've seen in our careers that still sit on our shoulders, and we need to fix healthcare so that people can go to work and maintain a career, decades of a career without burning out, and by burning out, I don't mean the, the definition you may be hearing, I mean compassion fatigue. I mean, a fear of harming someone again. I mean, a fear of walking into the hospital because I know I am going to fail today. The workload that's being handed to me today is not possible. I'm going to miss something. And when you walk into the world, into your day knowing that, I'm sorry, you can teach me deep breathing all day long. And is not going to help me when I try to go to bed at night and can't. So we've got to do something to improve the way we deliver health care. And I believe that we got a really good start of understanding that when we were developing this work at Mayo Clinic between 2003 and roughly 2007-ish, it took us a long time. But these are the non-negotiables that all of the collaborative members agree to and then how they get the work done, who does the work and when it's done, all of that is up to the individual site because you can't take something that was grown in a cornfield in Rochester, Minnesota and disseminate it to all the states in our country, Canada, Saudi Arabia, Australia and other places, prison systems and say thou shall do it exactly the same way Mayo Clinic does. That doesn't work, but these principles are something that we can live with, something we can adhere to and something that we can honor. So using our heads, this case review methodology that we go through is unchanged since 2004. This is exactly the same process as how it was developed at Mayo and continues to work. What we've added through the collaborative is actually recognizing that that multi-lens review and group consensus components brought together with the things that we're doing in the collaborative now, turning that data and information into meaningful knowledge that can launch projects that save lives and mitigate suffering. That's actually a really very, but a modified Delphi approach where we have multiple opinions and multiple things. And through each process, we get closer and closer to focusing in on the process or system failure that has occurred. And that allows us to turn individual stories and pieces of pretty data on a chart into something we can communicate and action on and actually inspire our leaders with. There's a lot of different fields that have been brought into this work from design thinking, high reliability, engineering, the Delphi method, Lean Six Sigma, agile, and all of it is brought together to make this process work. And I'm not going to go into this in detail, because I could spend two hours on the last slide and another two hours on this one. So just know that there is a lot going on behind this. But one of the most important things that we've learned, and I didn't learn this at Mayo, um, unfortunately, and and I'm to blame for that. Um, It's because Uh, It's my fault. I love learning and doing. And so I owned too much of it. And as a result, as we've disseminated, we now understand that there are two very, very different types of people within an organization. There's many different types. But as you're looking at all the people who you might want to participate and spread in this work, the leader needs to look at the people and say, what are their skill sets? What did God put them on this earth to do? What are their natural talents? What is their shape? And put them in the appropriate parts within this flywheel where they can excel and where they can grow because then they will be re-energized because of a feeling of contribution. And so thinking through that and helping leaders think through that while we're implementing is something we didn't do at the beginning, but we certainly do now. And we also have had... um, taken some one of my favorite pastors rick warren does a lot with uh mnemonics and and so i do too i always have that's how i learn and so we have three different mnemonics that we've uh, actually recently launched into a foundation that i'll share the details with you about later but it's a foundation for healing healers and we use these acronyms uh spirit comes from the fruit of the spirit grace is because we are not good at forgiving ourselves and we need to have compassion with others and heart is what we must bring back to this work and so there's different skill sets around each of those that need to fit into the types of management and leadership in this work and so this is just an example of bringing back real human skills into quality improvement and patient safety to make a difference, not only in the numbers, not only in the metrics, but in the lives of the people who are doing the work by aligning them and their natural skills with parts of the work so that they can excel. Our reviewers do a lot of work, as you know, and the methodology has unchanged from 2003, 2004, this was a lesson that one of our nurses taught us at Mayo Clinic when we were arguing about what was an opportunity for improvement. And at that time, we didn't call it an OFI, we called it an issue. So what was an issue? What, what could we define? We weren't gonna use standard adverse event language because that made us all defensive and changed our body language and the way we spoke with each other. So we wanted opportunities or issues. And we were debating. Uh, many of you have heard this story, but it's still one of my favorites where demonstrates that this work wipes out the hierarchy that continues to plague our ability to have true organizational learning and healthcare, Because it was a nurse who stared down a senior surgeon who was arguing that a 90 some year old with a respiratory rate in the 30s to 40s for consecutive hours Wasn't uh, didn't have any issues because the patient was gonna die anyway. And another month we were arguing about whether someone with blood pressure in the 60s and 70s and a pulse in the over 100 for eight or 20, our longest 47 consecutive hours, didn't have any learning opportunities because the patient was gonna die anyway. And the nurse finally got fed up, interrupted the senior surgeon and said, could you have watched your mother and her little dig was assuming you love your mother could you have watched your mother assuming you love her sit there with the blood with a respiratory rate in the 30s and 40s for four to six to eight consecutive hours and just hold her hand or would you have been in the hallway writing your own orders and asking for help well the righteous indignation in that academic room disappeared immediately and that became our new bar What we were using was standard of care met. We could argue that at a different time, but one we use now, if we don't know, and that's what every collaborative hospital and outpatient area and prison that's using this work now is using, if this was your dearest loved one, could you watch what you're seeing playing out in that record? Or would you have tried to intervene? And if you would have tried to intervene for your loved one, then the care is not good enough for your loved one, And it's not good for anybody else's loved one either. And that's the bar. And boy, do we bring a different pair of glasses to those records when we ask that question. So we don't use this language, preventability, attribution, biggest problem, causality. We just don't. Because as soon as someone pushes that into the conversation You can watch a room of five to 50 people, doesn't matter how many are there, change their body language. They lean back, they close their hands, they look at their cell phone or some other device. So we use the words, issues and opportunities for improvement. We all know somebody with issues. No one has problems talking about somebody else's issues, somebody's kids' issues, their spouse's issues, a coworker's issues, pets' issues, My mother-in-law has been living with us for um, uh, six weeks now. I could talk to you about her issues. So we have no problem in that space. But when we start talking about blame, which is what preventability, attribution, and causality bring up in us, instinctually, we stop learning. And we can't let that happen. Because if we're going to get to every hole in that Swiss cheese, I don't care how big or small they are. I don't care if it's preventable or not preventable. My, one of my favorite examples is we used to have a smart car and a Hummer, an H2, at the same time, sitting in, the par- in our driveway next to each other. And what I explained to a group of engineering students is, because they didn't understand the, the patient example, but what they understood was if you put the smart car and you put the Hummer in a head-on accident together, at that point of contact, the measured force is the measured force. However, they both come out looking a little bit different. So if you take a 19-year-old with a proximal femur fracture uh, obtained during, I don't know, a bicycling accident while he's training for a, uh, a triathlete, he's a triathlete, and he goes through surgery, comes out of the operating room with a blood pressure of 90s and the pulse in the 120s, and he gets a dose of medi- uh, wrong medication or too much, and he hiccups, and no one even notices. You take 93-year-old VEDA who has a ground level fall, fix her proximal femur fracture, she comes out of the operating room with a blood pressure in the 90s and a pulse in the 120s and give her the wrong dose of the exact same medication and she might die. Why? Because our 19-year-old is the Hummer and the 93-year-old is the smart car. The physiological frailty that's developed as we age and in our very infant newborns and preemies cannot withstand sometimes one teeny tiny little bump in the road. But the rest of us sitting in the middle can handle a few. So it's not surprising in the literature when we use a global trigger tool or other things that we find more events in the frail. So I want the little and the big holes that big hole for Veda was a teeny tiny little one for the 19 year old that didn't make a difference in the world, but we need all of them to actually be able to understand the incidence and the prevalence of what's happening in our systems and where our vulnerabilities are for our patients. And in order to accomplish that with frontline staff, which is what this is work works with, we absolutely must express grace and our acronym for it is gratitude. That's first and foremost. So as we talk about the opportunities for improvement, when we implement this in hospitals, the first opportunity shared with anyone are thank you notes. When's the last time I, as a frontline provider, got a thank you note for doing a great job with a patient from somebody in the hospital? We also need to reflect because this is pretty, heavy work sometimes reflect that 99% of the time we get it right and we do okay. But we have to accept that one to 5% when it doesn't go okay. And with curiosity, compassion and courage, look at those cases, honor those lives and elevate it to the care we'd want our loved ones to get. So what are we learning? These are the hospitals um, across the system, across the United States and Vancouver that are here. Uh, I need to add, and I'm so excited, we're working through the contracting right now with the state of California's prison system, the Department of Corrections, and also through working through the process with the British Columbia Mental Health Substance Use Services and Corrections. So we're going to be doing suicide reviews, the suicide attempts and other things in mental health and prison systems. And it it does, it's incredibly amazing and exciting to watch this work translate to that. We started out as mortality review. That's one of my greatest regrets in my career. Um, We started out to learn what was under the surface of the water. We should have called them iceberg reviews or something. Uh, Mortality review stuck. Our convenient sample to start were deaths. uh, And now everyone wants to do mortality review. But these are all the really cool things that people are studying and learning. And it's uh, really amazing to watch. Since uh, first quarter 2017, we've honored more than 20,000 lives through this work. 65% of them have identified opportunities for improvement of one or more. If we look at what the patient safety literature says in terms of rates of adverse events found with uh, voluntary reporting or some of the other systems, um, either all of the collaborative members have horrific rates and have rates that are, I don't know, three to four times what's going on in the rest of the country, or they're real learning organizations who are digging in and honoring the lives of those that they're studying. And in that we have more than 35,000 opportunities that have for improvement in the 14,000 plus cases that have been completely reviewed and come to consensus. This is just a high level, uh, get a feel for the type of cases people at each of these facilities are reviewing. And for those who have OFIs, a median number of two, or across the board, a median of one, Uh, the longest case had 83 opportunities for improvement. Someone definitely spent a lot of time on that case. This is our Pareto diagram for all of those cases. Uh, You can see at the bottom, end of life documentation, treatment and care, communication, deteriorating patient recognition thereof, and to later misdiagnosis, those top six categories, and they all have multiple subcategories underneath them, that is our 80-20. So if we, as a set of organizations, are going to improve the experience of patient care for patients and the people who care for them, then these are the buckets that we need to work on. One of the biggest challenges is, how in the world do we do everything that we're either state or federally mandated to do, which are on the 20% and some of them way over on the 20 percent and actually work on the stuff that's going to make a difference in the experience for the patients and the providers. By providers, I mean everyone in the hospital. How do we balance that? Well, one of the problems is, at least from my perspective, that iceberg, that tip of the iceberg, our leadership is traditionally only hearing about the things that are state federally mandated other organizations they belong to, Vizient, Premier, uh, Leapfrog, they're only focusing in on those things that they're being required to do because that's what they're accountable for. So this stuff that's over here on the left largely isn't even on their radar screen. So what could potentially communicate to leadership in a way that they might be inspired to do something? We have got to speak their language. We can't sound like we're whining. We can't sound like we're complaining about the same old thing. We actually have to put an S bar. We call it an S bar situation, background, assessment, recommendations, experience, institution, staff, and patients and community. What's the experience for that situation? And then follow with recommendations. That's our S bar. So this would be part of my S since end of life is our largest opportunity for improvement across all of our hospitals. We looked at the length of stay between those hospitals that had an end of life opportunity and those who did not, and then specifically pulled out the subcategory, palliative care team could have assisted sooner. So in our data, uh, we had over 14,000 patients that actually had a full length of stay that was accurate. We excluded negative numbers. And the median for all of those 14,000 patients was approximately a five-day length of stay. When you looked at any patient who had any end-of-life opportunity, their median length of stay was seven days. Any, if they had any other, not end-of-life, but any other of those opportunities for improvement, their median was five, and if they had no opportunities for improvement at all, their median length of stay was four days. Greater than one OFI, but no end of life, median length of stay was six days. So if I want, that, it, on average then, and we're using median, and this is corrected for the Bonfiorini uh, effect because of the multiple, multiple comparisons that are in here, but that's two days. How much does two days cost? Multiplied by the number of people Who might need an end of life or might need a palliative care consult that pays for a nurse to do that job i don't know pretty quickly if you look at the others down at the bottom just the palliative care team could have assisted median was seven for those again and no end of life was five days so roughly the same. Now, when we look at hospital by hospital, which is what we did at the end of last year and are going to do for this year, is look at each hospital to hospital. And in some hospitals, the difference between median and palliative care opportunity was six days on average per case. So lots of opportunity for the bear to be able to explain what the impact of this is, because the answer is there's no way palliative care care can get to every patient? Well, of course not. But which one should they get to? Whose lives and whose suffering can we help mitigate? I just wanted to point out, this is a Pareto diagram of the opportunities for gratitude. 9% across all of those cases had an opportunity for gratitude It's growing through time. It's becoming a bigger and bigger piece as we implement grace of what we do and becoming a big uh, portion. One of our sites, people have started doing just some really cool things. Uh, One of our sites hand delivers the thank you notes. So if somebody works nights and they got an opportunity for gratitude, one of the people leading this work goes in at night and gives them the thank you note. Um, Another group, Camille's team does celebration parties every year in in addition to other things. And so there's just a lot of honoring and a lot of gratitude that's going into this. And so I wanna bring this back into our iceberg This was the most recent one. We do this for every organization that does this work. Uh, In this particular organization, we had them take, they took the last 468 cases that they finalized between January 1st and October 8th of 2021. So they finalized 468 cases in spite of COVID. So they kept on pushing through. Out of those 468 cases, none of those patients had any voluntarily reported events falls, anything that hacks HAIs, nothing in the system, no voluntary reports of no medication errors, nothing that traditionally goes in their patient safety event reporting system, none of those patients. There were 17 that had, that, I'm sorry, zero had, were, there weren't any just in uh, their RL solution. 17 were in both and 451 of those 468 patients had opportunities in the SafeWare, which is the software that supports the safety safety learning system compared to zero unique patients in the tip of the iceberg. When we look at the unique events themselves, so not the patients, but the themselves, that's 17 patients that were found in both. 21 of those, those 17 patients had 21 events that were not found with our safety learning system. 13 events were found with both. And there were 625 unique events that were identified through the safety learning systems methodology that were not known, that were under the surface of the water. Leadership when they first see this are often taken aback. And one of them very frankly said to me, you mean I've been taking my ever shrinking quality resource bucket and attaching it to the tip of the iceberg and ignoring everything else? And I said, yes, because that's what his pattern had been. He looked at the charts he was given, which everything out of their event reporting system, peer review, et cetera. And that's where they allocated their resources. These other things, delayed recognition of a deteriorating patient, delayed a diagnosis, delay onset in treatment, palliative care not being involved, patient dying in pain, none of those things traditionally fall into the safety event definition by a trigger tool. Now, that's expanding and that's growing because the amount of experience that's taking place. But this is still a relatively new concept to many hospitals and many administrations. So how do we take that iceberg and all of those thousands of up 30 some odd thousand opportunities for improvement that we have and actually do something with it? That's where the last portion of our modified Delphi comes in when we do a cluster analysis, common thread, and a quality improvement definition. And this is what we did with VEDA. We only had three cases like VEDA, so VEDA is sort of our persona for what they experienced. But we took those three cases because they happened in very close proximity to each other, short period of time, shared experience, elderly patient aspiration post-op, delirium, aspiration, death, same experience, on almost exactly the same nursing floors cared for by different nurses and different doctors. So we look at the different nurses and different doctors to minimize unintended bias and make sure they're on the same type of nursing floor within a similar period of time to ensure that the process and systems that we're analyzing are as close to as possible like each other. So analyzing a group of cases from the emergency room and from a geriatric ACE unit, and then trying to find similarities and process breakdowns is an act of futility because the way care is delivered in the emergency room is quite different than the care in a acute care elderly unit. So we try to make sure that we're keeping those variables in this process as similar as possible. I am an army wife and I listen to my husband brief all the time and they always start with a bluff. So based on that, I'm going to give you the bottom line up front. The CCT or Cluster and Common Threat Analysis creates knowledge by providing the human context and adding clinical specificity to information from data sources. Therefore we get whose lives are we going to save? Who am I protecting by participating in this quality and improvement? who's suffering am I going to mitigate by volunteering to help you when I don't think I have another ounce of energy? Where in the patient's clinical trajectory does this project even mean to take place to stand a chance of making a meaningful difference? And where do we need to do the work and who needs to be involved? So after doing these second set of reviews, we find the answers to these questions and put another way, like the video of the Swiss cheese that Dr. Denham showed, we've got a whole bunch of patients going through our system and we have things put in place to protect them. And 95% of the time ish, they are protected. They don't make it all the way through, but sometimes it does. What is it about those patients that they slip through the crack and the others don't? What do they have in common? So when we went back to VEDA's experience, we did two things. We did a traditional FMEA, and we did the cluster and common threat analysis on those patients, and I want to run you through the results of that. In our FMEA, we started with a SIPOC divided in lanes between nurses and physicians, and then we brainstormed the failure modes. Nursing group brainstormed their failure modes, physician group uh, provider group brainstorm their failure modes. We then I'm just going to describe the process. I know you can't read the, the, the text. It's too small. Uh, we took the failure modes and instead of having them, those that are in the, in the room, uh, score them, we actually created a survey that had the failure modes randomly distributed between three different surveys. In different orders and distributed them to everyone on the med surge floor, every nurse, every hospitalist, intensivist, emergency room, et cetera, that cares for these patients, and took all of their information back and created our ranking and our prioritization of improvements. If we were going, and remember, this is the same entity that just finished that huge project where they improved their aspiration rates. If we had stopped here, the project that they would have embraced was to implement dietary limitations, visualize the dietary limitations on the room door somehow so that people knew when they were walking in and would recognize that the tray they were carrying was the wrong tray. The other thing that they would have done is figured out a better way to to find out who's on call and who to communicate to that came out in spades. The nurses didn't know who to escalate to because the doctors changed so much. So revamping the call system and the way to communicate would have been the undertaking they might've attempted. When we looked at the cluster and common threat analysis, we identified in those three patients. And by the way, while we were doing this, another one of the hospitals in the system threw in a fourth that was identical. All four patients were in their 80s to 90s. I'll use four because we added the fourth. All four patients were found down because all four lived alone and unknown down periods. All four had fractures and all four were held NPO on admission for surgery. One didn't make it to surgery because they had a VTAC arrest. The others uh, ended up having surgery, going to the ICU, suffering delirium, coming out to the floor, eating, vomiting, aspirated, died. Same clinical course. The crack in their system was because they were NPO on admission, none of them got the three ounce water screen. They did not have in their new system that they implemented triggers to screen people after admission, following surgery, following ICU stays, whatever the triggers might be. Several are obvious here. So what they did as a project instead was supplement and augment that vulnerability in the system to these types of patients. It just so happened at the same time, leadership was giving the trauma team a hard time with their increased mortality rate because of their red dot and their vision data, I'm sorry, premier data around aspiration. So we came around to the same issue the same way but the types of projects that they would have recommended were very very different and so these are the common threads and of these patients that made them vulnerable to fall through a crack in their existing system the other reason that i think this work is so important is it adds a facet to the information we're taking forward, both to leadership as well as to our front lines, the people who actually have to do the changes. We know what the leadership wants, the red dots on our dashboards that need to change, the things that are going in the wrong direction, that information's very available. People can see it, our leadership understands it. That's where our missions, our strategic objectives for the following year quarter come from. Our quality teams and our quality leadership have uh, whether it's Premier or Visient or their own quality databases. And in this case, they have what they're learning through the safety learning system, which allows them to prioritize things within that. But all of that's fairly data oriented and doesn't speak to me as the compassion fatigue provider on the floor. I need to know that what you're wanting me to do is going to make a difference for someone I see every day. And if it's going to help that person, it's gonna help me take better care of that person, you got me. It doesn't matter how tired I am. So this work and being able to come down to a persona like Veda, who's 93 years old, who was found down at home, fell, had a broken hip, had surgery and got delirious afterwards. I see that every day. I can get my head around that and I want them to be better. I don't want them going back to nursing homes or I don't want them going to a sniff for transitional care. I want them to be okay. And if this will help them do that, I'm much more likely to participate. Through the last year, these are some of the cluster and common thread analyses we've done across the collaborative uh, that can be taken. And what I love about them is they, for me as a clinician, I'm kind of a skeptic anyway, these follow a sniff test for me. So if someone dies in the first 24 hours and they have under-diagnosed obstructive sleep apnea and a BMI greater than 40 and they're on opioids, I can see where a respiratory death might happen in the first 24 hours after surgery. What are we doing and what's our plan to help them? Cardiac arrest in patients with pneumonia. Wow, when's the last time I actually got an ECG to look at the QT interval before prescribing the medication on our community-acquired pneumonia order set, the fluoroquinolone? We had several patients die because of that. Um, now you actually have to look at the QT interval before you can prescribe it, but how many EHRs have that rule in place? Palliative care team could have assisted sooner. This was in a community hospital. They had started a big project, large community hospital, started a big project working with palliative care and cancer on the Ox. They're gonna help palliative care get to the cancer patients. When they looked at the cases in the safety learning system, They were all elderly, transferred in from another facility, hospitalized within the last two weeks, and none of them had cancer. They're going to keep seeing that opportunity for improvement unless they actually address the vulnerable patient population, and that really surprised them. This, uh, the severity of illness, not recognized. This is a system-wide issue. It was across eleven hospitals. These were all in the ICU. We took one patient from each hospital. So all in the ICU, so not only were these patients not cared for by the same docs on the same floor, they were not cared for in the same hospital, yet they were having similar experiences across all of them. When we looked into those, they all had multiple comorbidities, not surprising. They all started on a general care floor and were transferred to the ICU because they had unrecognized respiratory failure. So they went to the ICU when they were extremists for intubation, And in the days preceding that ICU transfer, their respiratory rate was 16, 16, 16, 16, 16, 16. That's the hospital respiratory rate for that system. They had just given Epic over a million dollars to implement Muse when what they needed was to let the clinical nursing assistants know that respiratory rate accurately charted saves lives readmission following bowel surgery huge thing in one of the academic centers you know surgery getting in trouble all these readmissions it looks really bad on readmission they all died every single one of them there were six mismatch between the physician note and the rn note physician said On their standard discharge following bowel surgery, discharge summary said, patient's diet advanced to soft with no difficulty. Nursing notes all said, patient vomited after clear liquids. Recommendations on discharge summary said, eat ad lib. Patient comes back within 24, 48 hours. Of the six, now clearly this, at Academic Center, they're doing a lot of belly surgery. Of the six that came back and died, every single one of them was immunocompromised, cancer, or some autoimmune condition that were both that were being actively treated. So they don't need to revamp a whole brand new thing. It'd be nice if they fixed their discharge summaries, but what they need is a separate care pathway. They've got beautiful care pathways, but if you've got an immunocompromised patient undergoing bowel surgery, maybe they need to make it further in their diet advancement documented before they leave the hospital. It doesn't have to be a huge fix, but you'll protect these vulnerable patients. And what's interesting about thinking through the fixes for each of those problems on that chart, we're not talking about people-focused projects. We're talking about simplifying and standardizing. We're talking about automating after you verify your simplification and standardization works. We're already in the more effective space of doing quality improvement just by understanding who our vulnerable patients are that are slipping through our current cracks because it's the crack in the system that we're identifying. So Veda helped us. She and her other three citizens of that community help us turn data that was entered into a database. We've all got lots of that, Excel files, fancy databases. We made pretty Pareto diagrams when we visualized it and made it information for charts to share with leadership. But then we took their stories and their experiences and we took it, turned it into specific and actionable knowledge by adding that meaningful clinical context those stories and data can and do inspire leadership and also motivate me as a frontline staff member to want to make care better for my patients. And, oh my God, how many of you have participated in a quality improvement project that looks like this when you're finished? 95% of mine before I started doing all of this work, because I told you what, one, they you know, gave a million dollars to Epic to do something that is not going to fix the problem because if you put the wrong respiratory rate, which carries the largest weight in Muse, into the computer, it's still not going to trigger an alarm. So it's the wrong project. If you start all the palliative care on the cancer patients, but your frail elderly over here are the ones who need it, you're not going to fix the problem. It's the wrong project. When you're done, it's going to look like this. So by implementing this and moving around the flywheel, aligning this work, it's so flexible, aligning this work with your organizational mission, vision, and strategic initiatives, doing the learning together, the key parts in those ethos that we all agree to is that this is all provider, all nurse, all doctor. Um, People often include pharmacy, um, social workers, chaplains, uh, respiratory therapists, coroners, other people from the community, patients in this group talking about these cases because we all bring a very, very different lens. So this is not department specific, this is across hospital. People with different degrees, different levels of experience, different parts of the hospital, outpatient community, prisons, whatever it happens to be all together talking about the same case and from their different vantage points. We end up proving that as a group together with a shared vision and focus on learning from the life of one of our patients, we're smarter together. We're better together than we are as an individual reviewing a chart and passing judgment. All of us in that room have improved situational awareness. All of us become better managers and better leaders every single meeting because we know what's going on around us. The culture change that happens is amazing. Uh, Camille has a, a, a great story. There's many, so many good stories about this leveling, the hierarchy that we experience in our hospitals. Right-sized projects, when we're going through that, I mentioned the, the palliative care project. Well, shoot, um, I need to do it on the med surge ward. I don't need to do it on the onc ward. It's not a problem on the onc board. So I can actually target my project with the resource to that side. And then ultimately it enforces right place, right time in our standards of care. So I hope you've learned by hearing this, reviewing doesn't save lives, reviewing readmissions doesn't prevent readmissions and reviewing sepsis doesn't improve outcomes. We end up with a whole bunch of full databases and Excel spreadsheets. Only identifying common patterns and process failures and targeting them, doing something about them makes a measurable difference. Without leadership, when we all get together as people who care for patients, we grow, our engagement improves and our culture improves with leadership behind us, all of these things are possible because I've seen it all happen. One other thing I'd like to add as I close, this is very, very um, important to me. These are the people who are suffering right now and to do something about it, uh, Lacey and I, my colleagues, uh, Partner in all of this work, launched the H2 Foundation, Hope to Healing for Healers. Their, that curriculum that she's developing is going to be provided to all implement all sites that are implementing this work as, as optional. Um, and will a lot of it has to do with the way of the shepherd for learning how to manage your herd and learning from shepherds and how they take care of the things that are important to them. Grace resilience. Uh, The resilience one is the way of the warrior, where we take incredibly high high performing people, talk about some leadership things and teach them about change management so that even in their depleted status, they can work in their always high functioning way to continue to bring about change to make things better. Thank you.
0: Gene, wonderful, wonderful presentation. Thank you. Uh, If you can stop sharing, we'll uh, we'll turn things over to our uh, uh, folks here to uh, uh, respond. Wow, Uh, what a terrific presentation! I just there's so much food for thought there, uh, and so many wonderful questions that uh, we all, um, you know, I'm sure all of us have. Just as we introduced the. The uh, uh, our reactors, I just want to remind you that our motto with our communities of practice is to fight the good fight to finish the race and to keep the faith and uh, really you, you are doing all three of these things and uh, we just love uh, the work that you're doing. Um, uh, Camille I don't want to uh, mispronounce your last name share it with us for sure it's uh, wonderful to have both an RN and a JD who is a uh, 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 general counsel and responsible for this area that we've talked about um, it sounds like you just have an amazing education and then complement that with the great work you're doing uh, would you please uh, tell us how you met Jean and then kind of react to what you're hearing and building on it? I'd be
2: thrilled. And don't worry about my name, Charles. It's Charm but it's a tough one. So I was an attendee at one of your webinars, I'm thinking back in 2017. And I was in a position where I was struggling with really endorsing the idea of us being a, le- a learning organization, but I didn't think we had a strong enough framework to actually guide the work. So I'm lucky in my position, incident reports, report to me, critical incidents. I'm actually the facilitator for most of those. Our complaints office rolls up to me. I have wonderful physician colleagues and we talk about M&Ms, but we didn't have a methodology to be weaving some, in, some of that together and actually turning it into action. So I heard Jean, who I could listen to forever and I hope to be listening to forever, and it struck a chord. And so I reached out to her and said, how would you feel about bringing a Canadian hospital into the collaborative? And it's just turned into a a wonderful relationship since then. So I won't go into the history, but let me talk about the things that Jean just spoke about that really resonated with me. So one was this idea of using a traditional lens. And I still remember so strongly Jean's explanation around why we're not using any criteria. We're just going to look at consecutive mortality. And she explained to me that there is something to learn from every death. It's not about the outcome. It's not about the preventability. It's about are there places where we could do better. And so we just took that mandate of consecutive deaths. And I was in a room one day with one of our really passionate intensivists. And we were training on the methodology. And I looked over and she had tears in her eyes. This was a patient who was a palliative care patient at home and whose symptoms became really too much for the at-home supports to deal with and so was brought into the emergency department and because we didn't have a bed on the palliative care unit was left in emergency and then actually died about 12 hours later. So a very short admission and I saw Ruth crying and I asked her why and she said to me I wouldn't want my mom or dad to have their last hours in emergency. The team were brilliant. They found a bed versus an ED stretcher so that she would have comfort. They moved her to an isolated area of the unit. They did everything possible but I wouldn't want my mom to die there and it struck me that this is the opportunity that the methodology gives us. So that's the next thing I think about when Jean talks is that Every case that we review, and I think at my organization, we have very few where we don't find ofis. We also have very few where we don't consecutively find opportunities for gratitude. So it's never about blaming. It's always about the learning. And even on those cases where we think, oh, there were so many things that we think we could have done better, but let's celebrate the things that we read about that just make us so proud to be a part of our organization. And then briefly, Jean had a reference to one of our cluster and common thread analysis on one of her slides. And I get chills every time I think about this because I feel like I'm in a position where I have a very good sense of what's going on in my organization. But we had a cluster of cases where there was actually multiple OFIs severity of illness not recognized, deteriorating patient not recognized, uh, treatment delays. And so we brought those cases together and I think we had, Gene, you were there, maybe 20 people in the theater to do the cluster and common threat analysis. And when Gene started to present the findings after we'd implemented that uh, methodology And what we learned was that the commonality among those patients was that they all had some element of either an underlying mental health condition or a substance use or alcohol use disorder. And that the providers and the nursing teams had misattributed the symptoms they saw to those comorbid conditions and not to this acute medical condition that they were admitted for. I was speechless. And since we have done that work and we are maybe a year into our pathway about what we're doing to address that, we've continued to identify those patients. So now as a team, we come together and we go, wow, it's happening here, it's still happening. And it, it keeps us all so motivated to stay in the work. And that's the last point I'll make is that we originally had funding Uh, that would allow us to actually get to implementation of the work, and the funding was only for the physicians, and it was expected that the rest of us would actually find time within our workday, and we all know what that means, and when I came to the nurses sort of year three and said, I'm so sorry, you know, I, I, I can't find a funding source for you, and of accord, they said to me, this is the most meaningful work we've ever done in our careers, and we feel so engaged and so much a part of the bigger picture we're not going to stop, and I have since lost the funding for the physicians, and they say the exact same thing. They all believe this is how we are going to make a difference for our systems. They're wonderful one to one with their patients, but we can bring this to the higher level. and. We know we're going to make a difference. We are making a difference and we will continue to make a difference. So Jean, thank you so much for everything you bring to us.
0: Well, Camille, thank you so much for articulating the wonderful experience that you know uh, uh, data tells and stories sell. And your story really sells this so beautifully. Thank you so much for your commitment. And we'll be looping back with you to maybe uh, pick your brain on how we can reach out to board members. We've got some special access to board members who control the resources. And uh, John and I have been talking about how important this is this year to really focus on that. So it's a nice segue to John Nance, um, who is a best-selling author. Uh, John is uh, one of uh, my favorite friends. He is, uh, has been a captain of what, uh, with one of our major airlines. He is a Good Morning America ABC uh, commentator uh, whenever uh, issues in patient safety and aviation safety come, at, come up. He's a best-selling author. He's written screenplays, a multi-talented person, but most important, most importantly, what we always think about my team when we interview John and spend time with John is how articulate and clear his thinking is and what a great communicator he is. And I just think he's a real national treasure to us or a global treasure. John, please maybe react to what you're hearing. He's also a JD as well. Uh, So he's got that legal perspective as well as uh, hands on and john i'm excited to hear about what you saw from jeans presentation and the similarities of improvement in aviation that were undertaken years ago that kept our, our 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 fatalities to a minimum but i'd love to hear what your thoughts are john.
3: Well, first of all, Camille, you're dead on in so many of your comments. I appreciate that. And Jean, that was a marvelous presentation. There's a, there's an awful lot of resonance. And I think that's the uh, the right statement. in so many of the things that we have tried to move the needle on uh, within the last 25 years and 30 years, let's say, uh, at least in the last 20 in our recognition of patient safety. And patient safety is not dead, unfortunately. There are a lot of administrators who are running around thinking that they don't have to spend any money on this. COVID has reset it. I'll address that in a minute, but this is a national problem, and we've got to get beyond it immediately. Uh, first of all, let's go back. Your, your comments, Gene, uh, on uh, blame are dead on, And uh, but I think it's necessary to go back to where we had to get sensitive on blame to begin with. Why is that? It's because every doctor and every nurse, and you guys tell me if you think I'm off here, but uh, are trained to be absolutely intolerant of any incapacity or mistake uh, uh, at their own hands. In other words, you're supposed to be perfect, 100% of the time, perfect. Uh, No human being can do that. And we were beginning to build before COVID, I think, a pretty good recognition that, wait a minute, something's wrong in this equation. I've dealt with hundreds of doctors who basically looked at me across the table and I said, "You, you mean to say that no matter how hard I try, I might still make a mistake that would hurt one of my patients and said, yes. And inadvertently, the whole point is to recognize that and through the use of collegial interactive teamwork to be able to get people to find ways to construct a system that's going to catch the problems that we will not be able to individually eradicate. In other words, if somebody's making a mistake, we want a system to be able to catch that. And of course, that's what you're talking about in terms of uh, uh, of being able to go past that traditional lens and look at things in a way of targeting, not just the collection of statistics, but how do you utilize them? And also how do you keep, and you made this point, Uh, you did too, I think about, you've got to keep people very engaged with the idea that they can not only make a difference, but that the process of making a difference uh, is the fulfilling aspect of their practice, and we're we've got a lot of tired people out there. We uh, have come out of a massive uh, challenge to uh, to all of healthcare, and yes, some hospitals have sailed right through, and others have not. Some have been in in a situation in which I'd say probably seventy percent of their personnel are uh, are still suffering in terms of PTSD or any other uh, diagnosis. But I want to I want to personify from aviation one thing that I think is terribly important. Uh, Chuck and I have tried uh, uh, over time to get people to consider the idea of a medical NTSB. Now, NTSB stands, of course, for a National Transportation Safety Board. Why does that have any applicability to medicine? Because they learned quite a few years ago, even though not all the board members all the time were aware of this, that they had to eradicate blame. If they didn't eradicate blame, they were simply barking up the wrong tree, and they were never going to get to the point of being able to identify each and every contributing factor. And that's the brilliance of the NTSB method, which is precisely what you're describing you know, and, and putting into action in, in medicine, medical terms, gene. Uh, and it's, uh, it's very, very important. Um, the, you know, I'm reminded, remember the first days past, uh, probably the mid-90s, maybe the late 90s, when a lot of us were running around hospitals and doing analyses of one sort or another, and we would get board members who would say, well, wait a minute, what you've identified here is enough to make us think that this hospital is terrible and needs to be shut down because we would find all these cases. We said, no, we're simply pulling back the covers that have always been over this. We're showing you what reality is like. Well, there is a movement to not look at that reality, and that's just human Nature, and it's also administrative nature, and we've got to fight that vociferously. So to round this out, uh, Camille, as I say, thank you for your comments, especially when you point out and what I say are the three most uh, common human mistakes, perception, assumption, and communication, and assumption is the heart of one, of one of the things you were talking about there. And I agree. We have to assume uh, that we are going to make a mistake in what our assumptions are, and if you can't verify it, you need to stop and consider, is it worth proceeding unless I can verify fine. Uh, but anyway, this, this is very important. It's extremely important because it's a carry forward of everything that we need to be doing. And yet we are running against the tide of, well, we've had to fight this battle. And now we go on from here and don't talk to us about money for this and money for that. No, if you want to take care of the patient, which is patient-centric care, you've got to do what we're talking about here and what you saw articulately uh, laid out, Gene. Thank you.
0: Great, John. Thank you very much. And uh, we're right on time here to move to uh, uh, Dr. Jessick, Timothy Jessick. Uh, he's the uh, post acute uh, medical director at Theta Care. He's board certified in uh, palliative care and family medicine. He's the co founder and president of the Palliative Care Network in Wisconsin. We've had him speak uh, with uh, us on this webinar series regarding end of life. Uh, He was introduced to us by Dr. Huddleston, and we're so grateful, Gene, that you did. Tim did a fabulous job, and we worked with him on our five rights framework. We've put one together for the five rights of emergency care, the five rights of medical records, the five rights of imaging, and we thought, let's tackle the five rights of -of end-of-life care, and uh, he did a magnificent job helping us understand um, that opportunity. Tim, would you like to share what uh, your um, um, reaction to what Jean said today and highlights of your work uh, with uh, with Jean in the past?
4: Absolutely. Well, I'm one of uh, Dr. Huddleston's biggest fans and have been for, for many years. And, and what she's really done for us is in her work of trying to become more patient-centered, right? Meeting patients and families where they are. And and assuming and knowing that providers try to do the best job they can. We assume good intent from them. Um, Most providers haven't had training. You know, I was blessed to be able to go through a palliative medicine fellowship and learn how to talk and how to communicate with folks, Um, but other providers haven't as much. And, And what Dr. Huddleston's been able to do for us is be able to analyze data. And we were able to implement her process of chart review, which not only allowed us to look at data on a consistent basis? How, how can we look at deaths? How can we look at those opportunities for improvements in a consistent manner and then gather information from it? And what that did for us and for a large 16 hospital system is that provided the information and the data to say, we, we do have some opportunities for improvements. We, we can improve our communication at the end of life. We can identify folks that that really could uh, benefit from, benefit from different care. And for us, That was our burning platform at at our large system to not only provide communication training for pretty much all of our hospitals at our our facilities, it was the data then to go to our C-suite, to our CMOs, to our CNOs and say, we could make some changes and we could really help some of your your issues as far as mortality, as far as readmission, as far as ED visits per thousand, right? And really try to connect those dots for them. But at the same time, we saw that our providers became more human. You know, By looking for opportunities for, uh, for improvements from a system failure perspective, not from a person failure, from a system failure perspective, all of a sudden you have these really well-intended docs and nurses, and nurses are really, really good at this, by the way, all of a sudden they became really, really engaged. They really wanted to be part of the solution to some of these problems that we're seeing every single day. And all of a sudden, they wanted to be a part of the change that, that, that they really wanted to see and, and provide the care that they wanted to see with families. So, so what Dr. Huddleston's really brought for us is the structure for all of this and really helped us connect the dots with C-suite folks and some of those leadership folks to hopefully get the, the support and help we need.
0: Fantastic, Tim. Uh, really, really appreciate your comments. And Gene, uh, I'm going to come back to you and ask the three whys. You know, when we are talking to... Uh, people in innovation, which is the field that has allowed us to to actually fund our nonprofit has been tackling innovation. We always talk about the three whys. So as we look at your collaborative, and those people that are listening today, and we think about uh, uh, why why join the collaborative? Uh, Why join it now? And why this way? So why join it? Why join it now and why this method that you have is so unique? Can you answer those questions for us? Cause I really want to promote, we have no financial relationship. I believe that you could save lives and save a tremendous amount of suffering by getting more hospital systems together. This is the opportunity I look forward to, to get you in more hospitals.
1: I'm going to do them in a slightly different or... way. you wish. All right. So why this way? Because of the iceberg because of the phenomenal amount of the iceberg that's under the surface of the water that frontline staff of all kinds practice in day and night, 24 seven, regardless of how many patients you ask them to see or what you ask them to take care of. It's for them. The why now, it's for them. Uh, Camille brought it up. We've I've seen it at several other sites when the surges were at their highest and the mandates came down no meetings we're not going to have any meetings the committee members the frontline staff who do this work said no thank you we're going to meet anyway we need to talk about these cases it is cathartic to talk about the bad stuff that's happening around you and know that you can transparently talk about what's going on in a safe place that no one's judging you. You're actually, all, everyone's nodding their heads. Yeah, that happened to me last week. Might didn't die, thank God, but it wasn't because of me. It was because of you know X, Y, and Z. You get that camaraderie and you get that shared experience and it's healing. These people who are doing this work, I sincerely, which is why we launched the foundation when we did, we're watching people heal. From this pandemic, by continuing to do this work.
0: So that's why this way, why now, why now is is, and and I think I would interject is how many people do you how how many people you want to suffer? You tell me how long to wait. You tell me how long you'll wait, and I'll tell you how many people are going to suffer, both caregivers and uh, and and, and yeah. patients, and. Uh, um, and, and, I, and I really believe that uh, you're the only game in town to do this. So I'm going to loop back and ask a question. Typically, I ask for reactions. But uh, Camille, you are in a very, very wonderful role uh, as somebody with a legal background, as John has, and working in safety and quality, and clearly, wonderful. Articula- you articulate it so powerfully. If you were sitting at the table with board members, these are community leaders of nonprofit hospitals or even for-profit hospitals, and you had the chance to tell them one thing, and then you had to leave, and you had to give them the pitch on why to put the money up and do it now, not to wait around. We've all got COVID fatigue. We've got patient safety fatigue. Here in the United States, we've had um, tort reform has destroyed a lot of the financial, pure financial incentives. But, uh, Camille, and I'm going to ask the same question of both John and, and, and uh, Tim. What would you tell a board member before you had to leave? Oh, I would tell
2: them we've used the global trigger tool. And when we started to analyze our data, we knew that our harm rate, not death, but harm rate, was actually over 50%. And we managed to drive it down over a decade to an amazing extent. But our rate of harm was still 15%. We know we are hurting people. And the only way we can honor them or show respect to their experience is to learn from it. And this is how I know we're learning. And if you're here as a board, that your responsibility is to ensure that we're meeting our mandate to provide care, then how could you say no?
0: Fantastic. Little anecdote, <laughs> uh, I was at a, a co-leading the medication management, the first I- idealized design program with Don Berwick and the team and Carol Harrigan was standing up in front of a whiteboard and a fellow named David, Dr. David Klassen was sitting next to me, the developer of the trigger tool. And he was whispering to me about the trigger tool and Carol scolded us for being schoolboys who were con- conversing. And I said, Carol, this trigger tool idea is such a good idea. David, tell, tell Carol about this. And that was the, when that all started. And I'll yep. never forget that moment uh, when, uh, when that was introduced because she didn't know David. And I, I had met David uh, earlier yeah. and that kind of thing. So, so coming to you, John, John, you and I speak frequently to board members. Yep. What you've heard today from Camille and from Jean and from Tim, and you only had one minute to speak to them. Why would you tell a board member to invest in this program?
3: Basically, uh, along these lines, your responsibility as a board member for this organization is to get rid of the assumption that you've got everything under control and the assumption that you've learned everything you need to learn from the data that you produce. Your worst enemy is the phrase and the concept and the allegiance to, quote, this is the way we've always done it, end quote. Get very concerned about how well your people are able to extract the data, to talk about to talk about the icebergs that they don't see, and to get rid of the assumptions that as I say, you've got it under control. That is your responsibility. And if you try to do business as usual, you're going to hit the iceberg.
0: Great, John. Tim. You've got a chance right here. You're in California. I've got a hospital. We're sitting at the board. Uh, we just talked about the five rights of end of life. And we say, Tim, you met Dr. Huddleston. This collaborative is terrific. I want Tim to give you his 30 second pitch. You guys need to write a check to get this started. It,
4: it's all about the iceberg, right? Um, what we do currently misses a lot of opportunities for improvement. And if we're really going on the journey of zero harm, we need to look at omissions. We need to look at what's not being done because by looking at what's not being done and how, and what we could be doing differently, that will allow us to meet patients and families where they are. And ultimately, it'll mean that we can provide care that they want and not do things to them that they don't want. So the right care for the right patient at the right time.
0: Terrific. And I think the economic message of the end-of-life care is a huge opportunity, uh, which you and I have spent some time discussing, and it was fantastic. Gene, I'm going to come back to you. We've got three minutes. We're going to finish right on time. Gene, um, can you tell us uh, the value proposition. I want to have Lacey come and talk to this group. We have so many people hurting right now. Burnout off the chart. One in five caregivers have left the practice of uh, nursing and la- practice of medicine. Um, we have more than what has been reported in workplace violence, uh, uh, which we're addressing in our Emerging Threats program. Uh, can you tell us that what the value of joining your caregiver the lacy led jointly founded foundation uh, uh, for healing caregivers can you give us the pitch on that so we understand it and see if she can come and speak to us
1: the foundation the h2 foundation hope to healing for healers is for individuals so following many of the same teaching model following teaching model a saddleback with individuals study and small groups we've implemented that along the framework of uh, several different frameworks whether it's resilient grief if you're in immediate crisis um, you want some more you want you want to create change but you've never had you know gone to business school or don't have any change management so it's for individuals to do to do their own study independent study And then if they wish to work with a cohort of individuals, form small groups, that'll be facilitated and led by Lacey.
0: Fantastic. And just so so we're doing the
1: organizational, the organizational learning is on this side, the individual learning, independent learning and small group experiences in the foundation.
0: And uh, the uh, Rick Warren and and the uh, Saddleback Church has uh, I, I think it's over eighty thousand small groups that are yep. studying uh, programs and they have continued to grow because of COVID. Well, uh, I I just have to tell all of you that I am so grateful for what uh, you all have uh, discussed today, Gene. Uh, you are you you're probably going to eclipse the great work that uh, Don Berwick has done and and I'm just uh, so grateful to know you and to know that you have, you are fighting the good fight, you are finishing the race and you're keeping the faith. And I, we're really, really so appreciative. And so thank you so much. And um, uh, Camille, thank you. It's been great meeting you. We can't wait to hear more about what you are doing. John, as always, uh, wonderful contributions. And Tim, uh, we want everybody to go back and watch Tim's presentations from what he learned from Gene on end of life and the five rights of end of life. And so we'll close our webinar right on time. Uh, at half past the hour, and we thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you next month.